So today I want to, I wanna, if I can, I want to focus uh, on, on a part of spiritual formation. You know, we've been talking uh, in the last few um, uh, months in the summer about the miracles of Christ. And what we've said was that the miracles of Christ are never just uh, supernatural one-offs. There's always more to them than you think. They're windows into some greater, deeper mystery that you could never understand were it not for the miracle. That's how we went through the series. But the thought began to occur to me uh, late in the series, what about the work that happens after the miracle? It's very seldom even put in the Bible, uh, but it has to be there because even miracles are subject to the laws of nature. And so whenever Jesus feeds the 5,000, somebody's got to pick up the food. When, he, uh, when there's a miraculous catch in Peter's boat in Luke 5, somebody's got to actually take the fish to market or they just sit in the boat and they rot. When the man has the demons cast out of him in Gadarenes, he's been living in the cemetery now for months they won't let him back in town. Somebody's got to come back and broker that relationship with a guy who has terrorized the city that he lives in. So there's always that work. When Lazarus is raised from the dead, Jesus says, now take off the grave clothes. You can't have a guy alive again walking around like a mummy, you know. Somebody's got to do something after the miracle. Well, I think about the miracle of new life. I said to you some months ago, church, that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are a disciple, if you are a, quote, Christian, what has happened to you is much more than a transaction. This was not simply the forgiveness of sins bartered on the currency of repentance. What happened in you is that one day you were minding your own business and God came to you and he favored you. Now you could have said, no, I get that. But there was nothing to say no to if God didn't come to you one day. And he didn't decide to do something unique in your life. And when you said to him some form of, be it unto me as you have said, God implanted a form of life inside of you that was not there before. John says that he has given us life in his son. So that he who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son does not have life. What I want you to see so far is what you have if you are a Christian is not simply forgiveness. You have life. It's a miracle. There is something inside of you that is attached to you that is not you. You are in this life, and this life is inside of you. And everything that this life will become someday has been hardwired into it. That's the miracle. That's the miracle. And you couldn't have done that. You could have stopped it, 
but you couldn't have made it happen. This is above your pay grade. (laughs) But now that it's happened, what do you do after the miracle? Because the truth is, so many people start out like I just described. There's this miraculous conversion, and then what follows is about uh, 40 years of the same. Now, it might look different because they stay in church a little longer and they get recognized and nominated for positions, but that doesn't mean that what is inside of them is actually growing. So the question is, how do we grow that life? Somewhere I've read a statistic that says if this entire room, all of us right now, came to Jesus Christ in a miraculous conversion today, okay, brace yourself for the stats. One in seven would go back to the exact same life you came from within a year. That's about 14%. The rest of us in the room who did not revert to the same lifestyle, half of them would fall into some cycle that Jordan just described as sin again, confess again, sin again, confess again, and there you are in your 30s and 40s and 50s, hoping you will outlive this sin, but it's just there, so you just go, well, this must be what it's like. That's half of us that's left. Now, of the half that don't fall into that, only one in four of them will ever become active in any kind of church or fellowship or community. Can you feel the numbers going down? That means three out of four of the survivors are just sort of sitting there, you know, eating every Sunday. I didn't get fed, all that And of those that remain, one in 10 will actually go on to new heights. Those are incredibly bad odds. They really are. So I've been uh, figuring, trying to figure out how do we transform ourselves with the life that God has placed within us? How do we get to the place until Christ is fully formed in us? And, and so I Googled it, because that's what you always do when you know what to do. How to be transformed. <laughs> Some incredibly bad advice out there. There's, uh, it's like 31 million hits, so that didn't work. So I just started reading scripture and other things and talking with people that have walked in Christ for a while. I started praying about it in the mornings when I was alone. And what I've come up with is, is not going to shock you. That so much of our spiritual growth is dependent upon the Christian mind. Let me say it differently. That the, that the mind is a powerful engine. When I talk about the mind, I am not talking about your intellect. This is a university. So when I say mind, all the professors go, oh, we got this, we got this. Not that. I'm talking about the way that the, that the Hebrews talk to the mind. It's a big, wide blanket term for the following things. 
It's your thought life. It's your emotions. It's your discerning or your power to understand things. It's your value system. It's your moods. It's your memories. It's your cognitive skills. It's the stuff that you find important and so you learn it and the stuff that you find boring and so you don't. All of that is rooted in the mind. Whoever gets the mind wins it. It's game, set, and match to whoever controls the mind. So this is big. I'm reading in uh, uh, Mark chapter 8. Jesus and Peter are in an argument. And it says Jesus has just prophesied that he would uh, be crucified. And Peter won't hear it. So Peter, it says, uh, rebukes Jesus. And the, the, the same word is used for casting out demons. So this is not Peter looking at Jesus saying, I think you should reconsider this. No, no, no. That's the way two intellectuals argue. That's how intellectuals fight. This is Peter on the balls of his feet, leaning into Jesus, arms flailing, saying, you are wrong about this. No Messiah allows himself to be crucified. And then the text says, Jesus turned and rebuked Peter. Same word. So <laughs> this is a great scene. So you got Jesus and Peter leaning into each other and their arms are moving and they're flailing. I wish I would have seen this. And you know how some, my money's on Jesus, by the way. And you know how sometimes when you're in an argument like this, somebody will say something and it's what they've been thinking for a long time and they'll just bam, say it, nail it. And the other guy will just go, yeah, well, that's a really good point. They won't say it publicly because nobody changes their mind in front of people, but they'll kind of go back and they'll think, you know, he was onto something. And what Jesus said in that argument was, revolutionary. He said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you do not mind the things of God. You mind the things of, it's a bad translation. What he literally said in the original language is, you are not minded like God. You are minded like a person. Let me say it differently. You don't think in the same way that God thinks. You think in the way that humans think you don't have his operating system. You have another operating system. Better yet, Peter, get behind me because I am from Venus and you're from Mars. I mean, these are two different species. The problem with Jesus and Peter in that moment is not that they have different ideas or different opinions. It's that they have two different souls so that everything that happens at the same time, they will interpret that differently. Everything they read, every bit of news that they watch when they sit down and watch the fracas in Charlottesville, Jesus and Peter will come to two fundamentally different conclusions because their mechanism is different. That's the mind. We're, relax, we're not going home yet. I'm just saying, this is deeply rooted in us. Let me tell you why that's important. Because every time I was dealing with my mind, I was dealing with it on the wrong floor. 
I used to say, God, whenever I'm on a run and I'm two, three miles in and I'm sucking wind and I can't, I hate my life. And some person pulls up in a Windstar van that's 20 years old and they're half my age and three times my size and they're smoking a cigarette and drinking a Big Gulp. And they throw the Big Gulp into the street right in front of me. God, I have some unkind things to say. Will you change my reactions? Give me better impulses. I give it to you. Let me know when you're done. Really? Sometimes, um, if you're younger, you struggle with impure thoughts. And sometimes those impure thoughts are sexual in nature, and sometimes those thoughts are violent in nature. And you keep going back to God and you keep saying, you gotta, I need you to, God help me with my thought life. And it feels like you're praying this thing again and again and again for years and it never touches it. Sometimes when uh, you get angry, it starts to seep into your bones and your problem becomes over time that you don't just get angry. You are angry. So your entire attitude starts to be affected. Here's how you know that. You get cynical and negative and pessimistic and critical. And it comes out of a desire for things to be so much better, but because they're not what, they, what I want them to be, it just sort of seeps into your bones. And before long, your whole attitude starts to be affected by this thing. And so you go back to God again and you say, God, you have got to change my attitude. If I describe the problem, it's quiet. I must have described the problem. I'm starting to see that the mind that the Bible talks about is not really one thing only. It's a combination of things. And these things are interlocking so that what happens to one affects the other. This explains why when I'm doing really well in one area, it still feels like I haven't grown because the other area keeps pulling it down. And these these three interlocking, if you will, engines are all subliminal. That's their power. Let me say it differently. You will think that you don't have control over any of these things. One of them is instinct.
I was uh, reading, or actually watching a documentary uh, some time ago, and, uh, and it's called Fastball because uh, I love sports documentaries. And they were talking about the speed at which a 90-mile-an-hour fastball comes across the plate. Did you know that the dude with the bat has less than 200 milliseconds to respond to that pitch? Now hold that thought. Because some years ago I read that in order for a guy to hit a home run, he has to perform more than 140 actions, movements with his body at exactly the right sequence and exactly the right proportion in order to hit that 90-mile-an-hour fastball and send it out of the park. If he does any one of those things out of sync or not in the right proportion, he'll hit a grounder or a pop-up. It will not be the long ball. Now, what am I telling you? It is absolutely staggering that a person will have less than 200 milliseconds to respond and he can perform all 140 movements in exactly the right sequence and proportion in order to hit 40 or 50 dingers in a year. That is shocking to me because nobody is born with the ability to hit home runs. So somewhere along the line, this guy has learned a series of automatic responses that convert a 90-mile-an-hour fast. One batting coach said, when the balls, wait for the language, he said, when the ball's coming at you at 90 miles an hour, there are no choices. It's pure instinct. And when I heard it, I thought, I have some of those too. But it's not for home runs. It's for decisions and impulses and reactions that I have that suddenly overwhelm me. And I could have swore I was stuck with these things. Could have... I, Man, I would have said, well, you know, it's sort of the way I was raised. Yeah, I'm in my 60s, but it's still my daddy's fault. I would have swore. But I'm learning that instincts happen before you think about what happens. So part of the transformation process is to work alongside of God to transform your instincts. You keep wanting him to make you better at choices and control your impulses. And God, when Matt Stafford throws a pick six, help me to care but not get mad. Dude, that ain't gonna work. You gotta back up and you have to change the way your instincts are wired so when it comes at you fast and furious, you have the right movement. Let's move on. Say, so how are we going to do that? I'm going to talk about that next week. <laughs> Desire. If your mind were a movie, 
what would it be rated? So we go back to God and say, I have these thoughts. I want you to, but we don't understand that the thoughts are simply expressions of desire. God, I have these imaginations of what I ought to do, but we don't understand that those imaginations have a genesis, and that genesis is rooted deep within us in a thing called desire. So we keep asking God to transform our thoughts and to take away bad imaginations and all of these, but we don't ever say, God, let's go to work on my desire. Now watch, be careful with this. Because this is a culture right now where all of us think that desires are innate, that we are born with them, and so it's just the way we are, so we just got to deal with these desires. This is a massive mistake. We end up chasing our desires instead of leading our desires. So we can't change them in a day, I get that, but that doesn't mean we can't get in front of them and start to bend them like God bends a river. But right now I'm just trying to identify, this may be your real issue. Last one, dispositions. Yeah, there's a fascinating thing occurs in uh, uh, Philippians chapter 2. Listen to the language. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He's not talking about desires. And he's not talking about his instincts. Keep reading the text who being in the very form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, even the death on the cross. When Paul talks about having the mind of Christ, he's talking about a disposition of humility. He's not talking about a pious life. He's not talking about thinking right thoughts. He's talking about being hardwired in your soul so other people are more important to you than you are. And that is a mind change. One more time. All three of these interlock. All three of them are subliminal. So you don't think you have control over any of them. You say, look, dude, I am what I am. No, you're not. You are what society has made you. Somebody got into the river before you did, and they've been feeding you crap for years. And you've been buying it because you can't fathom there is another way to think. The first thing that we have to do, and I'm going to wrap it up right now. The first thing that we have to do, you guys, is come to grips with the idea that 
all of these things um, have been infected years ago by either the world, the flesh, or the devil. All three of them have formed these things, and all three of them are malfunctioning. But all three of them can be transformed by the power of God. Let me say that in slow motion. God can change all of these things. So that when you wake up tomorrow morning and you do whatever you want, you'll like what you get. You won't spend some day in the future apologizing for it. And when somebody cuts you off in traffic or when the Colts lose dot, dot, dot again, <laughs> your natural reactions will have been trained. When you go into a room and the board meetings start to dissolve, and right when you want to power up and make decisions just to prove that you're the leader, whatever, you will naturally elevate other people. But it begins by saying, this is, this is what I want to do.